Humans Having Discourse Podcast. Discourse? You mean like it's just people talking? Wisdom, politics, religion, anything, everything with Ethos Ananda. Hello, welcome everyone. Today I'm joined by Chandrasekhar Acharya Das, aka Zero War. Um, Chandra, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. Greetings from Mayapur. It's great to have you. Um, it's my before... honor to be with you. Oh, thanks, thanks. Um, you know, you were the second devotee of Krishna that I ever met, and we met in Mayapur. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> that was a while ago. Yeah, yeah, kind of a yes-no answer. <laughs> I don't really remember perfectly. <laughs> That's okay. So today we're going to talk about preaching ancient wisdom in the modern era. So before we begin, uh, can you just tell us a bit about when you started preaching? Basically, the moment I came in contact with Krishna consciousness, this was like September 1994. No, September, yeah, September 1993, actually. yeah, I remember somehow or other, by I guess by Krishna's arrangement, the first book I ever received, except for the one that I got at LAX, which I never read, but which gave me the access to the ISKCON addresses, you know, and through which I contacted the Paris temple because I was living in Paris at the time through a college a year abroad from Cornell University. So aside from that little book, which I never really read, the first book I ever got on Krishna consciousness was this book that was published by the BBT, the North European BBT, a red, big old fat book called The Nectar of Book Distribution. And it had all wow. these quotes from Prabhupada's purports, verses from Kaviraj Goswami, you know, direct verses from the Chaitanya Charitamrita, tons of excerpts from Prabhupada's letters, you know, dating from 66 to 77, testimonies by different uh, preachers or, you know, um, about the importance of outreach, about the importance of sharing Krishna consciousness with others. So, so before I could, I even began reading the Bhagavad Gita, I was reading all these more, I guess, uh, insider, you know, commentaries, purports, thoughts, realizations, um, verses about the importance of, of spreading Krishna consciousness. So I would say like from the very, before I even got to know the, the ABCs of the Bhagavad Gita, I understood that we have to distribute the Bhagavad Gita. Wow, that's really interesting. So you were instantly attracted to preaching even before you knew, you fully knew what Krishna consciousness was. Yeah, but it wasn't my f- fault in the sense I didn't really search for it. Like I remember I went to the Paris temple and I think the second time I went there, I met this, at the time, a, a monk, a brahmachari who was from Croatia. And because my mom was from Croatia, we, we hit it on and it was really nice to me. I was just like totally brand new, 20 year old, not knowing anything. And he said, here, I have a gift for you. And he, he just gave me this book, you know? And so I have to thank him, I guess. Sounds great. Um, so I'd like to start in general, get our get some good definitions going, and then eventually we can get into some more detailed um, techniques, methodologies, etc. So first of all, I'm curious what you think is the difference between preaching and teaching. The difference between preaching and teaching. Hmm. The difference between teaching and preaching, you know, avoiding sort of stereotypes and stuff like that. Um, I would perhaps, I would perhaps venture to say that teaching has more of a, of a component of respecting the other and um, hearing him or her and sharing one's knowledge Whereas preaching has perhaps a little bit more of a, I don't want to say it in a condescending or a bad way, but perhaps a little bit more of, a, of an aggressive, like, here's the truth, you got to take it, you know, mode. What do you think? Well, I'm thinking um, the main difference to me is that a, a teacher has a student, meaning the student has already agreed to some kind of relationship. Mm. Whereas the preacher, and this is what I think you're referring to with the aggressive part, the preacher kind of 
invades or <laughs> you know it's a strong word but the preacher is is kind of entering into someone else's world and trying mm-hmm. to bring them into their own world right which, yeah teaching there's already been a sort of a contract assigned <laughs> like the other person's willing and, and and you know wanting or willing to hear you yes yes and so at least by that definition i consider myself to be a great teacher and a terrible preacher that's my own experience (laughs) it's interesting you're touching on a point of free will here and to what degree does god respect the free will of others and to what degree does he slightly perhaps bend the rules like for example i mean since i brought up this topic of book distribution you know when i was a monk that's i did that for five six years just passed out thousands and thousands of bhagavad-gitas and we often heard we often you know meditated on the idea of paramatma of you know the, the super soul so when you're approaching someone you're trying to tell them about krishna and they don't want to they don't have no idea you know what to speak of wanting to be taught it's like out of the blue you're approaching them and giving them a bhagavad-gita or something and and we often meditated on on the idea that you know paramatma the super soul is within that person's heart and the super soul or god reciprocates with the preacher or with the teacher's desire and therefore from within while respecting the free will of the person may nudge slightly nudge that jiva that soul and and, and kind of say okay come on take the book from him or just listen to him for or her for a few minutes you know that sort of nudging so because we believe that God wants all souls to go back to him, right? So therefore, I think God has sort of a, sort of, you know, a vested, he has a, what's it called, a, a conflict of interest. On the one side, he wants to respect all souls. On the other side, he wants them to go back to him. So maybe there's like a slight breaking of the laws, so to speak, for the ultimate good of the souls in which he kind of is not completely 100%, you know, respectful of their free will. And out of just kindness, kind of nudges them. I think that's maybe what what Krishna did with Prabhupada, for example. You know, his we believe his desire was so intense to spread Krishna consciousness in the West that perhaps Prabhupada, I mean, Krishna, in the heart of all the all his followers, you know, kind of nudged them a little strong from within, like right to 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 to, to come to Krishna. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean by this kind of nudge that that's happening there. And uh, yeah, it seems like it, there's always a dance going on, right? It's never just like, okay, we have complete free will and that's it. And it, there's complete destiny and that's it either. There's mm. always a dance between many different personalities, really. We like to keep it personal, right? right. <laughs> um, one more uh, definitional thing I'm, I think is important and I'm curious what you think. What's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? I think knowledge can be theoretical, whereas when we speak of wisdom, what's implied often is realized knowledge. Mm. And realized knowledge means it's like become part of our character, would you say? Yeah, it's no longer theoretical. For, for the person who has the experience of it or who believes he or she has the experience, it's, it's no longer theoretical. Like the person is speaking from an experiential uh, dimension. Mm. Yes, I agree. So like I remember one time uh, Bhakti Bringa Govinda Swami, a sannyasi disciple of Prabhupada, he once told me that he he met Prabhupada or he saw Prabhupada, he went to a lecture and, and Prabhupada during the lecture said, please believe me when I tell you that you are not your body. And he says, you know, I had heard that many times because he had become a devotee months or if not years before meeting Prabhupada or seeing Prabhupada face to face. So he had read that statement so many times. It's the foundation of the Bhagavad Gita, right? We're not our bodies. But he says, when, when I heard Prabhupada directly say it, it was thunderous. So we could say that, you know, Prabhupada was speaking from a, from a place of realization, whereas many of us believe that we're not our bodies using that same example, but may not have realized it much yet. Hello? 
Uh, I can't hear you anymore. You're uh, oh, hello. Hello. Yeah. OK, we're, we're back. back. It's OK. I heard everything you said. Um, now I forgot what I was going to say. Uh, oh, it's just a great example. So for me, it was really easy actually to conceptualize that we are not the body and we're the eternal soul, but to fully live that knowledge, that realized knowledge, moment to moment, day to day, year by year, there's like a, a small really, I think, say they've they've attained that level of real of wisdom. Okay, another thing I'm I'm curious about, and this is could be why I am so bad at preaching myself. Um, I think that the ancient I basically think ancient everything is good and modern everything is bad. So that's it's a strong position, but that's basically where I'm coming from, where I only want to talk about ancient knowledge, ancient at wisdom least, with people. At least you're not saying everything Western is bad and everything Indian is good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not at that place, I guess. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on, on the ancient versus modern situation? I think there's some good things. I think the principle that we've, like, for example, the principle of Yukta Vairagya that Rupa Goswami uh, codified in his two famous verses, uh, you know, those two verses, the one that talks about false renunciation and the one that he names yukta vairagya, correct or proper renunciation, which is incidentally, Prabhupada wanted to be printed in really large size at the entrance of the Bhaktivedanta Book Trust warehouse in uh, wherever it was in Los Angeles or New York. So for example, that principle is, I think goes beyond ancient or modern. The principle is eternal. It's beyond time. The principle of using anything material in the service, in the preaching mission of God. That principle is not ancient or modern, and it applies, I think, just as much, you know, 500 years ago or, or at the turn of the, of the century or whatever, as it does now or as, that, as it will in 200 years. So I like to, I, I prefer to look at the principles. Is the principle eternal? Does the principle apply past and present? And if it does, then perhaps that's what is good to focus on. Yes, I'm the same way. I think that's why I like the ancient stuff more, because it's more timeless. So mm -hmm. when, when I think about modern science, modern philosophy, modern anything, really, there's a, just, it seems a tiny percentage which is actually timeless and eternal something we could call timeless wisdom. I I really can't think of anything, though. When I think of the modern world, the good things, I think of technology and this kind of global culture we have now, where people from all over the world are, are connecting on the Internet. I think that's ultimately a good thing that we should preserve. And also, also sort of, you notice there's a move towards, it's almost like there's a move, speaking in that general global culture that you're talking about a move maybe you know far away from spirituality but a move towards a sort of a more what krishna describes in the bhagavad-gita as, as a vision or a paradigm in the mode of goodness where you see some commonality in everybody regardless of their color of skin for example now with this george floyd issue you know people all over the world are just like up in arms against racism you didn't see that 200, 300, 100 years ago. People are, are, are up in arms against speciesism, against abuse towards animals. You didn't see that, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Um, uh, complain, you know, people are up in arms against abuse of, of, of women. So it seems like in some strange way, and perhaps, you know, Lord Chaitanya, Krishna, God is orchestrating this kind of behind the scenes, uh, or maybe it's just the effect of just, you know, the, the budding Sankirtan uh, sacrifice that's being performed more and more all over the world. 
people are kind of coming more and more towards a, a place where they, they really value the equality of all being, some sort of metaphysical equality. Yes. Um, I remember talking about something similar to that with H.D. Uh, Goswami. And um, it seems to me that, yeah, there's a good intention behind it. Like, but, but if it's just equality on a superficial level, you're missing the whole point. Right. There's actually nothing there. And right. the only way it works is if you bring in the soul. Then you, you can talk the about real equality and real justice in that sense. I agree. There's a, one example I thought of from The Matrix. I'll, I wonder if you think this is an accurate example of a preacher being Morpheus and a teacher being the Oracle. Do you think that's fair? You know what? I forgot the difference between Morpheus and the Oracle. Or the, or Morpheus is that African-American guy with the black glasses who tells him, like, yeah. take this pill or that pill. But I forgot what the Oracle is. The Oracle is the is an elderly lady, and you know she only talks to the people who've already been saved by Morpheus, basically, and she gives them okay. advice on what to do. And she's the teacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think I think both are kind of uh, uh, interchangeable functions, you know. I hope like, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, it must be. I mean, look at, I mean, the example, again, I mean, we, little, we like to look at Prabhupada. Prabhupada went and, you know, did kirtan in the streets, you know, late into his movement. In other words, not just at the beginning, but, you know, 77, you know, to give lectures to anybody. Um, we, have, we have examples of disciples of Prabhupada who, even though they're like maybe initiating gurus or, you know, they have a dedicated flock of whether, you know, diksha or not diksha, just of students that they teach, they still like to meet random people who have no knowledge of who they are and they like to give them some prasadam or to give them, you know, the holy name or mantra card or a, a Bhagavad Gita, in that sense, acting as Morpheus. So I think those two roles, those two hats are I think it's healthy for a, a teacher slash preacher. You see, I put him in one in one term, the teacher slash <laughs> preacher to to remain humble and and real and yeah. A good example I think is you know, Indra Jumna Swami, for me. Like I, I've had a lot of association with him, and you know, in one sense, he's got that sort of mini acharya hat. He's got thousands of you know, initiated disciples, and he takes responsibility for them, and, and you know, and, and gives them knowledge and teaches them but at the same time he it's almost like he almost prefers to to talk to some drunkard teenager in at woodstock or you know and tell him about krishna so i think both are are important mm, sounds good um so i think uh i think now we can go more into detail so especially i hope you can teach me how to preach <laughs> or at least preach better. I, I really do think I'm, I'm a terrible preacher because even so if, if we take preaching out of the context of Krishna consciousness and religion in general, it's kind of like marketing, right? Not the yeah. same thing, but it's similar. And so when I was a kid, just trying to get my friends to play the same video game as me was <laughs> difficult. It didn't matter how excited I was, how really excellent the thing was. I've just been struggling my whole life trying to get others around me to, to kind of play the same games that I play. <laughs> well, remember, remember what comes to mind now is this famous statement by Kaviraj Goswami and the Chaitanya Charitamrita: "Krishna Shakti Hetar Pravartana." One can spread the Sankirtan movement only when one is empowered by by God or by Krishna. So, you know, we may feel adequate or inadequate in our capacity but the, 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 our scriptures say our acharyas you know uh, echoing scripture uh, remind us that the empowerment comes from above it's not really our own ability again mm. Prabhupada comes to mind in his famous prayers on the Jaladuta when he arrives in Boston Harbor 
and you, and you, you read his statements where he's like, I have no, I have no ability. There's no, how the heck am I going to convince these people about your message? I have no clue. I'm, I, I'm powerless. But I know that you are the greatest mystic. So if you so if you desire their deliverance, if you make my power of speech of speaking suitable for their understanding, only then will they, you know, connect. Only then will they understand your message. Mm. So Chandra, when you look back at all the thousands of books you've distributed and all the other preaching you've done, you've also made some really excellent music, um, which to me, that counts as preaching for sure, and good service. Um, so when you look back at you know your career, so to speak, wh what are the things that stick out as really effective, something that just worked really well? An attitude or a, a sentence that you might say, something like that? Oh, specifics about when you're talking to someone? It really depends on the, on the context, where you're speaking to, in what context. Or are you talking more in terms of principle or habit or uh, lifestyle or I, I'm I actually mean in specific. Um, something you might say to a person you're talking to on the street or or it could be an attitude. I don't know. With time I've developed more of a sense of being careful about distinguishing between again like theory theory and 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 personal experience and there's something kind of annoying and a real turnoff for me and so i assume it's the same for others who hear me when you hear somebody you know speaking beyond his or her realization like mm -hmm. repeating something from the bhagavad gita for example and just saying this is it instead of having the humility to say well you know i believe this is it Mm. And I think that makes a big, big difference because when you're speaking about your personal experience or your personal faith, like, you know, I really believe that Krishna is a supreme person. What can people say? Like, okay, hey, you know, I don't agree with you, but I can't take your experience or your belief away from you. So, so you're not speaking beyond, in other words, you're speaking from a place of humility and, and honesty. Whereas a lot of, I, I see a lot of times you have sort of more immature, overzealous, young you know communicators of krishna consciousness who with all best intentions are just kind of saying it's because they're this is it or this is that and it's like okay but like why don't you just say i believe why don't you just qualify it because you you, you clearly haven't or there's very small chances you've really realized it you know so I, at least for me with time i've kind of become more and more sensitive to to qualify my my statements with with terms like you know it's my belief I believe that you know I, I have faith that X Y Z. Hmm, that makes total sense, and it definitely brings up to into brings into mind I think where I struggle definitely lack of humility, but also as a philosopher as a a student of reality I I really don't like beliefs. I really want absolute truth that's like universal and everything. So I think that's why people get turned off sometimes when I talk because I'm very strong and I use absolute terms and, and this and that. But but you're, you're yeah. speaking from a place of logic and rationality and that's that's also very cool because you're not speaking about your realization. If you're speaking very logically, okay, you know, if we accept that this and this and this and that, then this must be the logical conclusion there you're it's that similar type of humility that you know that comes from let's say you look this is just my belief it's in the same category I, I would say to say well look you know according to all reason this must be the case if this and this and that no mm. yeah that makes sense um i'm very inexperienced here with the preaching thing but it's uh it's an incredible I mean, like in Krishna consciousness, preaching is not, it's way different than many other religions. Like I'm thinking of like Buddhism. So? Well, preaching, uh, like distributing books is not just increasing our numbers and maybe people will join us. It's the act in itself is a very high service. It, it is itself a ritual, a ceremony, a religious rite, so to speak, right? 
Okay, but other traditions value that activity in the same way, don't they? Yes, um, to the same degree. I'm not so sure. I know it's similar with with Christians, missionaries, that sort of thing. But yeah. the where the example I thought of, which where it really doesn't match, is Buddhism. I I can you even think of a Buddhist preacher? It's just like a weird idea, right? Yeah, especially if you have a sort of a uh, not even what to speak of non-dual. If you have a this non-existent. <laughs> reality is your conclusion at the same time paradoxically you see all sorts of buddhist preaching uh coming to the west since the mid you know since the 1950s technot han is huge for example that you know vietnamese buddhists who came to america mm -hmm. and france mathieu ricard this french uh buddhist teacher in america you know there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of buddhist organizations so they're definitely preaching too, quote unquote. <laughs> yes. Um, so when you uh, or when when anyone starts preaching to someone else, especially from a different culture or from different worldview, there's going to be resistance, right? Maybe. Yeah. So let, let's just say in general, someone's just resistant. Maybe they think. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know how I feel about this. I, this makes me feel a little uncomfortable. How do you typically deal with resistance? I believe in the having studied the history of um, of religious conversion academically, both in, on the undergrad and on the graduate level. I'm convinced beyond a doubt that beyond a doubt that the, the more cultural differences in terms of what we would call externals, food, recipes, architecture, dress style, musical instrumentation, the way one you know, does a religious service, and so on. Um, the more there's differences on that on that level between let's say two groups who have two different worldviews when it comes to spirituality and one group or one member of one group is trying to convince you know a member or some members of the second group to awaken to we would say or you know from from an from an objective third party view to adopt you know the the, the spirituality of the first group the more cultural differences there are, the harder, harder it is for people of group B to convert, quote unquote, to the spirituality or the religion of the people of group A. I'm convinced of that, having seen it in history, having seen it, having seen how for centuries and centuries, for however long we have, you know, recorded, uh, we have annals, historical data of, of, of religious groups, you know, in, in their efforts to preach, to expand in other cultures, you know, or in contexts that are other than the context from which they sprang from, um, that seems to be always the same, that, that same strategy, same principle is always there, you know, whether you look at, I mean, for, I, mean I took a course in, at UC Santa Barbara, at the University of California in Santa Barbara that really opened my eyes to this. It was, a, it was taught by actually by a, an, a white Orthodox Greek, um, Christian guy who um, who did a course on the history of, of preaching in the Catholic Church. And whether you look at the first preachers who go to China, actually, what's his name? Martin Scorsese did a good, did a great movie on that. I don't know if you saw it. Um, whether it's yeah, the first. I, I saw a review about it. I didn't get to see the movie yet. I mean, since you spent a lot of time in China, you, you, I think you'd find it quite. Uh, Oh, yeah, I really want to see it. Forget the name, though. Yeah, me too. And so whether first the first the first missionaries to Mexico, the, the principle is always to build, you know, cultural, linguistic uh, bridges with the people you're trying to preach while transmitting the, you know, the, 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 the nugget inside, which is the message that, you know, the theological message and the practice you're trying to distribute. 
you know, you, you often hear um, feedback from or, or letters that preacher, you know, missionaries in different countries write back and they're like, and there's this problem of the sort of the double conversion that they unconsciously try to impose upon the people they're trying to preach to. There's like, there's first the conversion to the, to the external culture of the preacher and then the conversion to, again, to the, you know, the theological belief and, and spiritual practice that the preacher's trying to give. And the first one is really non-essential. The first one actually blocks a lot of people from accessing the essence that the preacher's trying to communicate, you know? And I think we've seen that in the history of the Hare Krishna movement. Yes, um, that principle to me seems fairly obvious. So the next question is, you know, what do we do with it? How do we proceed? Um, I I want to share with you this. I, I, I shared this story in my first ever podcast interview, actually. I thought it was so fascinating. This is also about China. Uh, maybe you studied Matteo Ricci a little bit? Yeah, one of the first preachers to China, right? Yes, this is 1500s, 1600s or so. And so just like in the in how you were talking, uh, so Ricci would, he became a Chinese scholar. You know, he learned, he, he first adapted into the Chinese culture, learning the language, their, their own cultural, uh, you know. He, he dressed like a Taoist monk, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. He, he, ha he had all the same clothes as them. And, and he became revered, revered very quickly. And he was even, you know, uh, talking with the emperor. And uh, quickly, China became, was, was about to become a Christian empire. Hmm. And it was actually ruined by the pope and by the later Jesuit preachers who were insisting that the Chinese should stop their own cultural what's the word i'm looking for cultural uh rituals i guess about yeah. ancestor worship but mm -hmm. anyway all that external cultural stuff that china's been doing for thousands of years they said no you have to stop doing that even though you're you're you love christ and you and right. you're really receptive to to christianity even though that's true you need to stop doing your Chinese stuff and start doing our Roman Western stuff. And it was so insulting that the emperor said in one letter, you people are banned. We will never be Christian and you have to get out of here. And, and it's just the most poignant example I know of in history where mm. it points to the principle. Continent, right? Yeah, it would have completely changed history. In, in ways we can't imagine yeah. if they were just cool. They said, hey, you love Christ. We love Christ, too. You want to be Chinese with how you're a Christian? We can be Western with how we're Christian. That's great. So, um, so yeah, that brings brings us to um, the future. Hello? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Hello? Oh, okay. Yeah, sorry, there was a delay there. I, mean, I just let me just add something to your really nice observation. In America, for example, you have, like in just in Los Angeles, for example, you know, there's you see billboards on the freeway for, you know, a Korean Christian church, right? Mm. It's a Korean Christian church. The, the letters are in English and in Korean script, and Everybody there and everybody in the world understands that this is a Christian church. Granted, but it's a Korean Christian church. In other words, the language is going to be Korean. The external culture is going to be Korean. The food's going to be Korean. The, you know, the local pastor is probably going to be a descendant of some Koreans if he didn't immigrate, you know, recently, or he, maybe he was born from Korean parents in America. And that's so, in other words, they are they 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 own their Koreanness, so to speak, while being Christians. And yeah, to like kind of lead into I interrupted you. I'm sorry. You were gonna talk about the future. I think I think a strategy for the future for us who are part of the you know the global uh, Hare Krishna movement 
I think we we should we had better own our own local culture as Vaishnavas, as opposed to making abstraction of it. In other words, you know, a, a devotee, let's say a Sicilian devotee, I think, you know, has, has better tell the world, yeah, I'm a Sicilian Gaudiya Vaishnava. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Vaishnava, I'm a quote-unquote Hindu, specifically Vaishnava, specifically Gaudiya Vaishnava, and I'm a Sicilian Gaudiya Vaishnava, you know, and I offer, I offer mozzarella and basil leaves <laughs> and fresh tomatoes, you know, to Radha and Krishna. And I do it with bhakti and please bless me that I can do it better. But I'm going to stick to my basil and tomato and mozzarella, you know, and, and the devotee from Bali, you know, has no qualms and saying, yeah, I'm a Gaudiya Vaishnava, but I'm a Balinese Gaudiya Vaishnava. And therefore I'm going to dress like, you know, we've dressed with these sort of like half skirts, kind of, you know, colorful dresses for the last millennia. And, but I'm a Vaishnava. You know, yes, own it. Chan mm. When I just yes. I remember when I was on, speaking of Indra Swami, when I was on the Polish tour, I was part of a band and there was a devotee, a drummer, a black African-American drummer. He was amazing. His name is Sri Sham, actually born in the movement, the Hare Krishna movement, took initiation from Redine Anamarj when he was like 14 or something, went to the Vrindavan Gurukul. And I mean, the guy was such an amazing drummer. He won a, a national drumming competition by playing Redanga. The dude was just like, and he, he's actually one of the editors of Bass Magazine. Um, Amazingly gifted. And I remember like, you know, I'm half French, half American or both. And I remember once he said, Chandra, you know, you're French also, man. Own it. Own it. And that struck me. I was like, holy cow. Yeah. You know, instead of trying to no, know, I'm, I'm only American. No, I'm also French. I'm going to own it. Right. It's it's an external designation, granted, but we're engaging it in Krishna service. So in a similar way, I think devotees sometimes have a tendency to to. You know, one thing is to completely identify with your body and everything related to your body. That's obviously an illusion. We're not our bodies and therefore we're not American. We're not Sicilian. We're not, you know, Peruvian. We're not Australian or Korean. We're not our bodies. We believe that. But coming back to Rupa, this idea of Rupa Goswami and engaging everything in Krishna service, we're also, we're not impersonalists. The impersonalists, you know, make a clear cut distinction. You know, what is it? Jagat Mitya, uh, Brahma Satyam Jagat Mitya, you know, spirit is real and matter is illusion. But we, as devotees, we don't have that same sort of relationship with matter. We say it's temporary, but it comes from a real person, namely Krishna. And so in that sense, it has substance, eternal substance, even though it's, you know, it comes and goes and it's temporary. But it's not completely illusory. If we call it illusory or false, we, we, we say that only because it's temporary. But its source, namely God, or personal God, is not false. It's not illusory. And so, therefore, because its source is not illusory or completely false, that thing itself, namely, let's say, matter, and all the designations that come within that matter, is not also completely illusory, as impersonalists would claim. And therefore, it has some sort of, some sort of substance. And therefore, all the more reason to claim it, as opposed to, you know... Uh, make abstraction of it claim it and use it in krishna service just like you know i'm a i'm a i'm a, I'm a korean christian you know yes chandra i i totally agree and uh you know not only is it is it much better for preaching to own our local cultures our local communities it's way more beautiful going going to bali or china or thailand and on the one hand, you, you're a devotee, so you fit in with the other devotees. But then on top of that, you get to experience this new local culture, which is sometimes, to be honest, a lot better. <laughs> At least the food is better. You know, that's what's happened to me in China and Bali. Oh, my goodness. The prasadam here is just amazing. It's right. incredible. In India here, too, like you get these amazing Bengali preparations that are just, wow, out of this world. At least where I'm at. You know, I'm in my airport. Mm. But sometimes you uh, miss a good old, you know, a good old whatever, you know, vegan cheeseburger. You know, it's, <laughs> we're both fans of Rita Anandamarch. You know, Prabhupada told Rita Anandamarch, eat, you know, what you like to eat. And so there was this story. He tells the story sometimes. I heard it a couple of times. There was a GBC meeting in like in 1978 or 79. And, you know, 
the question was asked, what would you like to eat, you know? And, and Rita Anwar says, I want a peanut butter sandwich. And like, <laughs> it was like this shock, kind of like, what, peanut butter sandwich, you know? But then Tamal Krishnamar says, you know, oh, yeah, I'll also take a, tam- a, a peanut butter sandwich. And then, oh, yeah, I'll take one too, you know? And so, so the devotees were like, yeah, actually, okay, we can, be, we can be American in our taste, you know? And if it's longer than prashadam, then Haribo, you know? So, <laughs> that's a funny... Yep. Uh, that's a good example. And sure, yeah. It's living from the principles. That's wisdom. All the external stuff... You know, it's it's nice, but we just, you know, shouldn't be attached to it. Um, one Speaking other of thing food, I'll... yeah, go uh-huh. ahead. Well, no, I just no, thought, yeah. of, you know, there's that nice anecdote. It's in the database. You know, anyone who's hearing this can look it up. There's that conversation between um, um, Prabhupada and, um, uh, oh, who's that famous uh, poet? Ginsburg, Allen Ginsburg. And there's a, there's that conversation where Prabhupada, you know, Alan Ginsburg says, yeah, but you know, people, you know, to come to Krishna consciousness, you have to eat Indian food. And Prabhupada's like, what is this Indian food? You know, this Krishna says, fruit, flower, you know, a leaf, fruit, or water, offered with devotion. And he and he stresses that he says, you know, Krishna has thousands of Lakshmi's, goddesses of fortune, cooking for him, all sorts of wonderful dishes. He does not need any, or he doesn't want, or doesn't need any of your material food, whether it comes from West Bengal, Orissa, Korea, Australia, France, whatever. He doesn't need it. He doesn't require it at all. But what he wants is bhakti. What he wants is devotion. So I really like that, that conversation where Prabhupada really stresses the, again, the universality of bhakti, you know, the universality of bhakti. Unless we start stressing that, and you know, there's not that many expressions of culture. There's stress, super important there's food recipes there's you know the way you do music there's you know whether you sit on the floor or on pews there's only a handful of expressions of culture and devotees in the world had better really paying attention to those details to those few you know expressions and really tailoring tailoring them to local sensibilities if, if they have a chance at all to to make the Hare Krishna movement, a real global phenomena and not a global phenomena for a majority Indian diaspora. Yep. That's what must happen by definition, because that's the world we live in. We don't, the whole world is in India. The whole world is America and China and Africa and all these other places. Um, I'm glad you brought up 926, chapter 9, verse 26. This is my favorite verse in the Gita. Hmm. Um, and it, to me, it, it just really encapsulates the love, the, the love that Krishna has for us as the divine father figure. So one, um, I see this all the time, actually, but there's one specific example when I was in Vermont. Uh, there, there are these Nepali immigrants who have come to Vermont, and there was a little girl walking past the the pizza shop where I was working, and she, she you know, little angel with next to her grandparents, they're all innocent and and whatever. But anyway, this girl, she picks up like a piece of dirt from the ground. It's it's like a little stone. It's nothing, and she goes, "Look, Baba, look what I give just for you." And then they go, oh, thank you. We really appreciate that. And, you know, the, the parents, they know it's it's nothing. But because it's offered with love and devotion, they really they really will accept it. And right. that's what Krishna is doing for us. Right. Right, 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 right. Sometimes we hear, well, you know, but, but Krishna, you know, Lord Chaitanya likes uh, spinach. Now, it's true that Bhaktivinoda Thakur in some of his songs... Uh, and other sources as well. Do you hear my voice okay, or is there a lot of background disturbance? I, I can hear. It's okay. Yeah? I can move inside if you want. It's a directional no, no, mic no. I have. No? Okay. Ooh. So, um, you hear, like, for example, to use this example, you hear that Lord Chaitanya liked spinach a lot. It's one of his favorite dishes. Now, the question comes up is, you know, is it one of his favorite dishes because he eternally likes spinach, or is it because... There's a lot of spinach in West Bengal where he happened to appear and devotees there were accustomed to cooking spinach and 
they offered their spinach with tons of love. I mean, the eternal associates of Krishna came from Goloka Vrindavan to, to you know, accompany Lord Chaitanya in the form of whatever, you know, Srivastakur or, or Pundarit Vidyanidhi or, or Mukunda or, or, or Govinda and so on, all these eternal associates, Srivagadadar Pandit and so on, they obviously are going to offer, you know, to Krishna with tons of bhakti. Um, and so the question that comes up to us now as practitioners is like, because, you know, you often hear this, like, no, you got to offer what Krishna likes. You got to offer, you know, to Krishna food that Krishna likes. And it's like, you know, you, you're like, okay, well, where do you find out what Krishna likes? You know, you, mm-hmm. you can find out what Krishna liked when he was here 5,000 years ago, when he was here 500 years ago. In one instance, you know, maybe like he appreciated a particular recipe of shock and then, you know, Bhakti Thakur who had the vision of that, wrote it down. Okay, but then how do you know if Lord Chaitanya wants spinach today? Maybe he wants something else today. You know what I mean? You're not there. You can't ask him. Like, Lord Chaitanya is not in front of you. Like, what would you like to eat today? What do you, you know, what does your transcendental tongue, you know, like today? And, and furthermore, God actually, by definition, is so loving towards his parts and parcels that, like, he'll accept, you know, if the devotee wants to offer him this out of spontaneous love, he'll totally, you know, that'll be his favorite dish because the devotee felt inspired to offer that to him, you know, on the spontaneous platform. But for us who are in the platform of sadhana bhakti, of, you know, practicing rules and regulations so that we can gradually come to higher levels of Krishna consciousness, the only thing we have to go by or go for in terms of reference is explicit statements such as your favorite verse, 926. And there, Krishna doesn't, like Prabhupada told Allen Ginsberg, like, he doesn't say like, it's got to be you know, spinach, or it's, it's just got to be offered with love, whatever it is, within the category that, that he describes. Yep, it's all there in the Gita. It's all there in the Gita. <laughs> we don't need anything else. I, you know, I started reading um, Garuda Das's translation of the Bhagavad Gita. I'm on chapter three now. It's, I hope you it's, like it also. Oh my God. I mean, it doesn't matter what translation I read. There's verse by verse is is a volume of of wisdom that is it's it's perfect. You really don't need anything else. You can just pick one verse and meditate it on it for like a month, a year, and you know, <laughs> best not to add too much more beyond that. Um, anyway, let's go back. <laughs> you don't to, want to take birth again. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, back to preaching um, cognitive dissonance this is a big it's no longer a problem for me thank God but when I talk to other people I notice it very quickly as soon as I start talking about things that are a, a little bit too off into left field so to speak I notice cognitive dissonance dissonance and um, yeah, it, it's it's like to me, it's just a kind of resistance that that you get when you're trying to market something, preach something, teach something, etc. So, what do you think about cognitive dissonance and how to handle it? One of the old, one of the youngest disciples of Prabhupada. I think he was he was one of I think he got. Initiation for who was like the last one, the last ones, or the youngest one, either the youngest or one of the last ones. Apparently, the the youngest. His name is um, oh my god, I'm so ashamed, I don't remember him. Ah, oh, he's in Hawaii. He 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 tried to run run for president. Um, oh my god, I'm so sorry. Tulsi Gabbard? No, no, but uh, <laughs> no, it's a male. He's got a male body. Um, oh. anyway, I remember once he was telling me. He said, you know, like the Jimi Hendrix experience, the band was called the Jimi Hendrix experience because it's, it wasn't just, you, you didn't just hear Jimi Hendrix, you experienced, you know, Jimi Hendrix, whatever that meant, right? So in this, so I think there's this, I mean, Krishna consciousness really has, we believe, I believe for sure, a mystical experience component to it. And actually that mystical experience component is, I would say, you know, above this pristine theology above this beautiful, theo- you know, philosophy is our main selling point is our, is our, you know, if you want to use marketing terminology, it really is the, you know, our, our, yeah, the best, the best weapon quote unquote in our marketing arsenal is 
the experiential component of Krishna consciousness, which we believe is easily ex accessed through kirtan, through coming in contact with Krishna's holy name in, in a congregation, through prashadam, you know, through that, that, that experience. I mean, I remember the first days, I, the first times I went to the temple in Paris, I thought I was walking into a, uh, I thought, I swear to God, I thought these people are extraterrestrials. You know, the fact that they were all dressed <laughs> like freaking like, you know, so far out and not just the monks, but everybody just, you know, certainly added to that experience. But I thought like, my God, these people read minds. They're just, they're operating on a whole different platform of consciousness here. And, and oh my God, like I gotta be, I gotta, I gotta be careful with what I'm thinking. Cause I, I really thought all devotees were literally omniscient. I mean, okay. I had some, yeah, <laughs> that, that thought got, got a little, you know, refined and qualified with, with, with purification and time as I, studied the Gita, but I thought, oh my God, that, you know, the experience was just out of this world. I mean, the first kirtan I went to, I was just like, oh my God, what did I just walk into? Like, what is this? Like, oh my God, I can't, I can't just categorize, classify this as just yet another movie I went to or another, you know, cafe I went to drink or another chat with a friend. This is like in a whole different, you know, category altogether. If I'm at all honest, I just experienced something just like that I've never experienced, and that's just phenomenally like night and day different from any other ordinary sense perception I've experienced in my 20 years, right? So, to answer your question, I think we got to somehow be instruments to offer that experience to people. And, and, and therefore, Prabhupada stressed, you know, Kirtan, like getting people to chant the holy name so they can experience Krishna's mercy through the holy name and, 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 and Prashadam also, and, and you know, just so yeah, somehow get them to experience it so it's, it goes beyond like what you were talking beyond knowledge it actually becomes realized it becomes as you said like wisdom and and no one can no one can deny personal experience you know i mean personal experience is worth billions of dollars like there's nothing stronger than experiencing krishna you know mm. and i think you know christians also talk about like being touched by jesus you know i, I felt jesus come over me and i like i felt you know i mean that same principle is there of experiencing the divine, experiencing the divine beyond just theory. So we have to be, I think if we are pure, and this is important, we have, and I'm definitely preaching to myself here, we have to be, we have to live a pure lifestyle. We have to live a pure lifestyle so that we can be as much empowered, you know, by God's love and by God's all attractiveness so that when people, you know, hang out with us, they, they feel, that that God, you know, that that magic, that love of God somehow oozes through us, you know. I mean, you can you can't cheat that. Like, you know, why did Prabhupada? Why was Prabhupada able to to influence so many people? And and you hear testimonies of people who saw Prabhupada, who were around Prabhupada. They were like, oh my God, when I saw him, when he looked at me in the eyes. I mean, how many times do you hear that in those Prabhupada memories? When Prabhupada looked at me in the eyes, even for like a split second, I thought he was looking at me. You know, since since. My, you know, since since billions of lifetimes, you know, he was seeing me naked you know, as a soul. You hear that from literally dozens and hundreds of people who saw Prabhupada just by hanging out with him. You know that story that, like that Prabhupada, I um, oh, forget his name again, I'm really bad with names. Prabhupada disciple lives in Vrindavan. He tells a story um, that when he was at, at, at an airport and Prabhupada was arriving in America somewhere, and when Prabhupada came through the door, there was this African-American uh, janitor, you know, maintenance man who started screaming look at that man look at that man he's shining he's shining look at that man look at that man you know you know mystical experience just by seeing just by coming in contact with someone who's an exalted soul so you know i come back to that first sentence that's you know that statement by kaviraj goswami krishna shakti pravartana. you have to be empowered in order to spread the movement so Individually, if we if we live a pure life, then there's higher chances that Krishna will empower us to really touch people just by our association with them, you know. And then it's not about your ability or my ability; it's about being conduits of of God's unlimited love and unlimited all attractiveness, you know. And that's multiplied or amplified all the more when when someone can hang out with similarly, you know, empowered souls chanting God's all powerful name together. Then it's like, wow, right? Hmm. It seems like as preachers, we need to unite our energy with 
God or whatever it is we're preaching and then step out of the way and mm, let, way. yeah. And then yeah. let that speak through us. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of our job, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well said. That reminds me of Hari Namananda. When I was a, a young monk, we had like this hero called Hari Namananda Prabhu who's married, who lives in Switzerland. He's, uh, and, and at the time in the mid nineties, he was just like this monster book distributor. <laughs> I say monster because he, he was so empowered in Switzerland. He was, he, you know, he distributed sets of Bhagavatam daily sets, plural. Like he, wow. he broke his back basically because he would like walk around with stacks of like, you know, 20, 40 Bhagavatams. And he was able to just like, you know, and there was a culture back then of selling the books. I'm all for giving books for free. I've definitely changed and I'm, I'm all for free book distribution. I think that's the way of the future if you're not a monk. But anyway, he was a, he, he was able to just, I mean, selling religious books is a lot more difficult than giving them for yeah. free. And I'm not saying we should, you know, why should we, should we be, uh, uh, you know, sadists and try, love to inflict extra pain on us as if that pleases God more. No, but anyway, not getting into that topic of whether we should give or sell Prabhupada's books to people. He was so empowered and we we're like, and then he mentions in that, you know, that book, I remember that next year of book distribution, which I haven't read in like 20, you know, 20, I don't know, 20 years. I always remember he said, you know, I always pray to Krishna to please not be, not to get in the way, to not get in the way. Yes, that is definitely something worth praying for. That's a real, genuine prayer that I try to do sometimes. <laughs> um, so I've I've asked you everything I've prepared to ask you about. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Um, maybe that you know there is a higher taste. Like if someone's watching this, I mean I can testify. I can testify <laughs> to the <laughs> to the parandrishtva the higher taste that Krishna talks about in 250, whatever, 8. There really is a higher taste that comes from um, from sharing Krishna consciousness with others. You, you really get your mm. transcendental kicks from it, you know? Mm. I was speaking to a friend the other day, and I was like, yeah, I was telling you, I was a devotee from Brazil, and last summer he was supposed to meet me and Tulsi Prabhu, on our three-week trip in the south of France, right, where we rented apartments in, in Toulouse and Marseille and Saint-Tropez and Nice, and we just went out on Harinam for a few hours and then gave out free Bhagavad Gita's, which you kindly sponsored. <laughs> and uh, and then the year before that, we were we rented one place specifically in, in Biarritz, the surfing spot on the Atlantic uh, coast near the, the Spanish border in France. And I was remembering how fun it was. I mean, we had so much fun, and, and there was, you know, we, there was zero sense gratification. We didn't even want to watch. Not to say that you know you shouldn't watch a movie once in a while, or, but we had like we're so busy just, and it, and it was like it was so effortless, you know, going out and just chanting and giving out free books and meeting people, and inviting them to chant with us, and doing a little bit of surfing on the side and just walking around doing a little shopping, and it was you felt Lord Chaitanya's presence so strongly. We just had fun. We're just like literally laughing so much. And that laughter was was a different type of laughter, laughter, I believe. It wasn't a laughter born just of contact of the senses with their sense objects on the mundane platform. It was the kind of laughter, you know, I would say shadow of, but same in the same category, in the same, you know, ontological category as that is that of as described in the Chaitanya literatures, where you see how Lord Chaitanya and his associates had fun. They just like had so much fun spreading the Sankirtan movement or in the act of spreading the Sankirtan movement, they laughed, they joked. It was just jovial. It was so much fun. So, um, so yeah, if you're in a rut, just always remember that if you can somehow get back to sharing Krishna consciousness with others in one way or other, it almost seems like it's, I don't want to say it's automatic because God's not a robot, right? Mm, mm. It's up to him, but it's, it almost seems like it's almost seems surrealistically robotic that God is like almost like bound to give you bliss if you if you spread Krishna consciousness because he's just so happy always with such an activity, you know. I I know what you mean by the automatic thing. I, I would describe it as um, like tuning in. 
you're 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 literally um, entering into another dimension. And as soon as you just open the door and you're in there, then you're there. Right. Yeah. Enjoy is not the best word, but yeah, you just go there and you're there. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I mean, I'll, I'll I'll just tell you. I remember. I remember. Uh, these were, you know, those years that I spent as a as a monk at the LA airport, because <laughs> I spent all my all my days at the LA airport, <laughs> you know, distributing Bhagavad Gita. Those were torturous days, because man, it was hard spending hours and hours and rejection. And I heard. I heard just up to you were at the airport. Oh, well, it was. It was torturous many times because you know so many rejections. Like ninety percent of the day, we're just getting you're just submitting yourself to very rude to many times many rude people who just who just like really rude to you, and and you're attached to you know giving them a Bhagavad Gita. But at the same time, I experienced so much spiritual joy during you know during those years. And I'll always remember there was one evening. It was like the twenty third of December, or maybe the yeah, 23rd of December. And we were out at the airport till like 10 p.m. You know, we've been there since like 8 in the morning. We're there till 10 p.m. You know, and those were the days when you could pass like boxes through security. So you're on the other side of security. And you had like your boxes of Bhagavaditas piled up against the wall, you know, next to the shop, to the shop where you buy postcards and, and soft drinks and stuff. And I remember I was in such, I was approaching one person after another with a couple of Bhagavad Gita's in my hand. And I was just like so blissed out. I, I was just almost like laughing from one person to the, the other. And my knees were killing me. My legs were just like excruciating in pain because I'd been standing up since eight in the morning, you know, couldn't feel my, my legs anymore. And yet I was so blissful for me in my limited, you know, I'm just talking for myself. Uh, for me, it was such a blissful experience. And I remember it was a, it was a mixture of like intense enthusiasm and feeling love towards others. And at the same time, this deep, deep sense of detachment where I didn't give a damn, excuse my language, about whether the person actually, you know, about the outcome of that exchange with someone, whether they took the, the Bhagavad Gita or not, like contrary to most of the time where we're like, you know, I really am attached to whether they're, you know, attachment to the fruit, right? There I was like, mm. like Krishna's mercy, I believe, completely detached. And I was just, Fly, I felt like a butterfly going, butterfly going from one flower to the other. And I remember at one point I stopped and I was like, oh, my God, if I could if I could keep the same consciousness that I'm experiencing right now and have a physical body that didn't give me as much pain or that I didn't have to, you know, drive back to the ashram and then, you know, shower and put to sleep and then, you know, pull out of the, the mode of ignorance the next morning. If I could just stay in this crisp kind of consciousness and have a, a body that, you know, that just was the same as I'm, I'm in right now for eternity and keep doing this right here at this airport with the same kind of pristine for me consciousness, I would do it. I would do it. They're like, I'm ready to do this for eternity, you know? <laughs> so yeah, that's so, you, you know, we, there's a lot of nectar Amazing story. Us. Yeah, nectar. That's what it's all about. And, you know, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about experience. This is how we can transcend all of this stuff I've, I've been asking about, like resistance, cognitive dissonance, also ego I could ask you about. But we can just transcend that whole game and just work on the level of experience mm. when, you're, when you're just experiencing some, the higher taste, the nectar, etc. And right. then you're there. So there's no, there's no worries. There's no attachments. Right. And everything works as it should work. Right. Where every step is a dance and every word is a song. <laughs> yeah, that is a, a great way to say it. <laughs> Brahma Samhita. Oh, cool. Okay, so I think we can uh, call it a day. Um, I do want to talk to you a little bit more, though, after the recording stops. Okay. Um, and it looks like you're uh, you have a friend coming by <laughs> behind you. <laughs> I have a friend coming by. Yeah, there's someone behind you. In oh, coming, coming! One second. The fruit vendor. Oh, cool. So, Chandra, is there any uh, any plug you want to make? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, you? I have I have a YouTube channel. It's called Ohm Zone on YouTube. Subscribe and uh, thank you. <laughs> cool. Yeah, and I'm Ethos Ananda on YouTube and all the other places. EthosAnanda.com, which is now banned on Facebook and Instagram. I don't know why. Really. Wow. Yes, very suspicious stuff happening there. But uh, anyway, <laughs> I take it as a badge of honor. <laughs> I'm speaking the truth, I guess. In a Let me switch over to my phone. If you want, we can hang up and then I'll switch to my phone so I can speak to the fruit vendor at the same time who's waiting for me. Okay, sounds good. So thank you, Chandra. Hare Krishna. Thank you, everybody. Uh, Hare Krishna. See you later. Okay, all the best. Thank you very much. All the best. Cheers.